Hey, good morning. How you doing, 11 o'clock? There it is. There's my awake service. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. If you're joining us for the very first time, welcome to Rocky Peak. We're glad to have you. My name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here. And how are you doing surviving your 100-degree fall weather? I tell you, I love living in SoCal, but man, if, the, if I did not see the words pumpkin spice everywhere, I wouldn't know that it was fall. But God bless that apocalypse for being honest. Anyways, when you came in, uh, when you came in this morning, you were given a program. If you would open those up for me, inside there is a message note sheet, which is a great tool that's going to help you follow along throughout the service. I'm going to pray and we're going to jump right in. Father, as we gather to talk about who you are, Jesus, thank you that we know that you are good. Thank you that we know that you love us, that you are for your people. Thank you that you are a king who is present. Thank you that regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our stories, we are all loved equally by the king of kings. And I pray today as we're going to unpack and jump into a tough topic for many of us, I pray that we be willing to listen to it with open ears. We'd be willing to listen to what you have to say, Father, through your word. I pray as I often do as the communicator that I become less, but that you, Jesus, become much, much more in our time. We love you, Father. In your son's name, we all said, amen. Well, again, if you're brand new, I just want to take a couple minutes at the top, and I want to bring you up to speed into the series we're in. You see it up on the screens. Last week, we kicked off a brand new series called The Genesis Chronicles of the Pursuit of Life. Now, this series is actually the second in what I affectionately call an epic trilogy of series as we've been doing that are all going to be focused on the very first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 3. Now, when the first series of the story begins, we were introduced to the main story, the main character in all of our stories, God. And in our first series, we saw looking at Genesis chapter one, that our God is a brilliant creator. And we also saw that he has limitless power in that we saw an overview of all of creation, how we all came to be by looking at what we call the creation week. Now, if you've been with us as we've moved into the second series, we're going into Genesis chapter two, and Mike has been using the analogy that the first series looked at creation as if you were looking at a Google map. And now what's going to happen in Genesis chapter two is that Moses, the author, is going to zoom in into that map, so to speak. He's going to zoom in into the creation, and what he's going to do, he's going to recount in much more detail the crescendo of creation, the creation of the first human beings, Adam and Eve, and also what life was like in their very first home. We call that Eden. And last week, Mike unpacked briefly the entire chapter, Genesis chapter 2. And as we continue this series, we're going to be pulling topics from that. But the big thing to understand, the underlying theme of this, mess, of this series is what Mike said last week, is that you and I, we were created for life. We were created to experience real life within the presence of Jesus. In fact, Mike used one of my favorite verses last week, John 10.10, in which Jesus says that he has come to give us life and the best life possible. And so if you were here with us, you remember Mike talking about the fact that because of sin, we lost our lives. But because of Jesus, we're not only restored to life, but now we have the ability to pursue those things that Jesus had originally created us to experience that give us life. So as we're looking at these topics, we're going to be looking at God's original design for these topics and how, with God at the center of them, they bring us life. In fact, we've been using a book analogy often when we talk about the series, and I'd like to introduce a similar one in that when you read an epic novel or an epic series, series of novels, usually the plot revolves around a problem that makes the world as it, not, as it should not be. And in our God story, that problem is sin. And the epic novel and the epic story, the journey is restoring that to the way it was supposed to be. And that's what Jesus has done for us. And we're continually through this series gaining a new understanding of what that means. And so today, we're going to be talking on the first topic out of Genesis 2, in which we need God to restore this topic back to what it originally was created to be, and that is the topic of work. Now, I know as I say that, it's been funny at the different services, we get a lot of different reactions when I say that word. You get some people that are like, oh, you get some people like, oh, gosh, and the reality is that's true. When we think about the concept of work, it draws a, a wide range of emotions, doesn't it? 
But if we're honest with ourselves, while it draws a wide range of emotions, for many of us, the majority of those emotions are negative. When we view work, we sit there and go, that is nothing but pure evil. (laughs) And yet this was part of God's intention for us. And so what we want to do today as we open up our scriptures, we want to take this concept of work, this idea of work, even the very definition of what work is, and we need God to do what he does best, is give us a radical new definition for what it means in his sight. And so we're going to jump in. So there in your note sheet, you have a section titled, Wrestling with Work. And so today we're going to make two stops in our scripture. And so our first scripture stop is we're going to be going, beginning your Bible, we're going to be going back to Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to be reading verse 15. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, as I often like to encourage, if you have your Bible and a writing implement handy, or if you have an app that's capable of highlighting, would you highlight that verse? Because what's going to be important is we need to understand, we need to understand the timeline here. See, here we are in the Garden of Eden, and God has created Adam, and he has given Adam work to do. Now, what we're already seeing is a very different picture than how many of us see this concept of work. And what I mean by that is many of us see work as being a result of sin, the fall, and the curse. Work is a necessary evil. In paradise, there wasn't work. But what we're seeing, and again, this is why this timeline is so vital, is that this is before sin. This is before the curse. And what we're seeing is very intentionally in paradise, there was work. In fact, if we even rewind a little bit earlier to creation itself, what's the first thing we see God doing? Working. That's what he was doing when he was creating. But not only do we see that, do we see this radical idea that work was forgiven to us in paradise, but we also see God's radical view of work that if you go back to the first six days of creation, after he created and worked on each day, what did he say? It is good. Not only do we see God as a worker, but we see God as someone who enjoys working. And so what's important about understanding this timeline is that work is not a curse, but work is a blessing that God gave human beings. So that sounds really good, right? So now we have to pull back and ask the question, what the heck happens? Because there's so many of us that are honest responses, that is not how I view work. In fact, we also grew up in a culture that tells you you have finally won at life when you hit the point where you get to stop working. So if this is what God put in paradise, if this is how we were originally created to be as workers with a God who loves to work, then what happened? And the simple answer is sin. See, work was not a result of the curse, but like everything else, work was affected by the curse. See, when sin came into our world, when sin came into our lives, it did something pretty nasty to so many things that God had created to be good. It distorted them. It started introducing lies into us, and we started viewing them differently. And so the result of that is we started taking these beautiful areas of our life that God gave us to be a blessing, and we started removing God from them. And so when we remove God from any area of our life, then that area loses its meaning because God is the source of our meaning. And when it comes to work, haven't so many of us, when we struggle with the idea of working, isn't that what we often struggle with where we wonder, what's the point? Where's the meaning? Am I I even making a difference through this? And that's a very real struggle. And in fact, what I want to do in our second stop in Scripture is I want to show you that struggle as played out through one of the authors of Scripture. And so do me a favor and let's turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, still in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. 
Now, as you're turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, let me set up this book a little bit. Ecclesiastes is a very unique book in that it's very different compared to the other books of the Old Testament, and it's very different compared to the entire Bible. Ecclesiastes, for many people, can often come across as difficult to read or difficult to understand. Now, traditionally, we understand that the author is Solomon, King Solomon, as in King David's son. We can't say that with 100% uh, 100%, uh, certainty, but I'm going to just go ahead and say that it's Solomon. And one of the things that makes Ecclesiastes a tough book is that it is very emotionally raw and it's honest. You know that stereotype of Christians being sugary and cheery no matter what? That is not Ecclesiastes. And that, because it's so emotionally difficult, it kind of turns people off, but there's some very good truth in Ecclesiastes. Because the author, Solomon, what he's doing is, as an old man, he is looking back on his life. He is evaluating the way he has lived, and he is searching for meaning. And one of the things that is very difficult about Ecclesiastes, because the tone is depressing in a sense, is that he looks at his accomplishments, he looks at his life, and over and over again he's realizing that these things don't have meaning. In fact, he says the word over and over again, meaningless. So how do we approach Ecclesiastes? We approach it like we approach any other book in Scripture. We approach it with an openness to God, to change the way we view the world. And especially in Ecclesiastes, why I don't want anybody to be scared off by the tone of it, is that what God is doing through this book is he is changing where we, is changing the way we see where we draw our value and our meaning. And so let's read together in chapter two, starting at verse 17. He writes, so I hated life. That's a cheery way to start, isn't it? So I hated life. He's not holding back, is he? I told you this was going to be raw and honest. And he's going to go on to tell us why he hates life. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So let me paraphrase this. He is looking back on his life. He is looking back on his career and all the hard work he's put into working. And what he is telling us is that he expected that his work was going to give his life meaning, purpose, and worth. And now he's sitting as an older man looking back and going, it did not. It didn't give me what I thought it was going to give me. So then what was the point of all of it? And he introduces the central struggle. And so let's keep reading. At verse 18, I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This, too, is meaningless and a great misfortune. So let's stop right there. It's raw, it's honest, it's depressing, but it's relatable, isn't it? Because he's laying out the way many of us see work and he's struggling with the same thing. Hey, I understood that if I achieved success in my work, if I became a titan of industry, if I got the promotion, if I got the position, if I got all of the stuff, my understanding as the author is that was going to give my life meaning and worth. And once again, he's sitting there going, no, it does not. And he's asking the tough question, then what was the point? In fact, in that section we just read, he taught, he came to a very truthful realization. I am going to die. And all these things I've worked for aren't going to matter in the afterlife. I can't take any of my toys with me. Nobody is going to care that I was the head of this company. Nothing. And I'm not trying to make light of it, but there's kind of an ironic humor in that his worry is I've worked my whole life to achieve all these things in the status. I'm going to die. And the person they'll be left to could be an idiot. 
And he's sitting there going, then what is the point of all of this? And he goes back and he keeps saying, it was meaningless. And keep reading, look at verse 22. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. So again, as he's deepening the struggle with his relationship towards work, he's realizing this never stops. Work never stops. And then we're going to die. So what was the point? And again, he brings up that question, where's the meaning This didn't give me value. This didn't give me worth. In fact, to use another word, what was he looking for in his work? He was looking for salvation. Do you see the problem that he has presented is a problem that many of us deal with because what Solomon did was he turned his work into a false god. And that's something that many of us do. See, we are created to have one God in our lives. We are created to have the one true God, and he is the only one that will give our lives purpose, value, worth, and ultimately salvation. But the problem is because of sin, we declare other things in our lives as God. And so in this case, Solomon, like many of us in the struggle, have declared our work our God. And so what it means is we are trying to seek our self-worth, our salvation, our, our value as a human being in our work, but a false God is just that. It's false. It will never do what only the one true God can. And so he's sitting there with the struggle going, this is meaningless. But what's going to be next is what, what's going to be next. What we're going to read next in the next couple of scriptures is very unique because we're going to see the author go through quite a transition and a realization See, he's been struggling with where is the meaning in our work? Why do we work if there's no meaning? And he's going to realize there's no meaning in my work because it is missing the source of meaning, God himself. So let's read together. Verse 24, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see from the hand of God. Oh man, that almost sounded positive, didn't it? In Ecclesiastes, if you get something that sounds even remotely positive, you pay attention. And he realized something. He's going, wait a minute, wait a minute. The reason my work does not have meaning is because it was missing the source of meaning, God. And all of a sudden, what does he say? Look at it again. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their work. He's realizing, how do you find satisfaction in your work? This is from the hand of God. Let's keep reading. Verse 25. For without God, who can eat or find enjoyment? He's painting a very clear picture. Of course our work is meaningless because the God that gives us meaning has been removed from it. A false God is never going to produce meaning. Only the one true God can. And Solomon's sitting there, I have spent these years working without God being a part of my work. And we do that, don't we? We make compartments in our lives and we make a spiritual compartment. But then we have these other compartments where God doesn't interact or touch. And one of them, for many of us, often is work whether we just don't think about God being a part of our work, whether we can't imagine God ever being in such an evil place as our work, or anything in between, there's many of us that we would never think of God being a part of our work. But here Solomon is painting a very clear picture. That is the only way work is going to have meaning. And let's keep reading and see how he ends this section. Verse 26, to the person who pleases, who pleases him, God gives him wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. Happiness as in being in a right relationship, restored with God. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So we see the parallel in both our passages, don't we? that we were created to work, but we were created to work in a way that does not remove God, but makes God the very foundation of what we do. 
And so as we continue to explore how God is redefining work for us, what I want to do is I want to spend the remainder of our time talking about a big picture principle and then talking about how that big picture principle impacts our relationship towards our work in three specific ways. So there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled Rediscovering God's Design. And your first fill-in is this. We are designed for work. We are designed for work. There in your note sheet, I put a quote from one of my favorite authors, Tim Keller. It goes back to the, it goes back to the heart of what we looked at in Genesis 2. He writes, the fact that God put work in paradise is startling to us because we so often think of work as a necessary evil or punishment. Yet we do not see work brought into our human story until after the fall of Adam as part of the resulting brokenness and curse. Work is a part of the blessedness of the garden of God. If you've been with us in the Genesis Chronicles, you've heard us use this we are designed for language before, right? Because that's the point of embracing who God made us to be, is going back and seeing from the beginning, what were we created to be? What kind of values were we created to have? And so we've been saying these truths, such as we are designed for work, We've said truths like we are designed for rest. We are designed for community. And those are all truths that we see come out of the first three chapters of Genesis. But if I had to sum all of those up into one statement, it would be that we are designed to be the reflection of God. In our core beings, we are designed to be like God, and therefore we are designed to be his reflection in our world. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. And so therefore, what it means that we are designed to be God's reflection is that we are designed to find joy in what God finds joy in. And in our specific topic today, we see that God is a worker, And God finds joy in his work. We see that God's design, God's intention for us when it comes to work is to see work not as a punishment, but to see it as a blessing. It only becomes a punishment when we eliminate God from our work. What what does it mean to dig into this deeper that we are designed for work? It meant that we are designed to work for God and we are designed to work alongside God. It means that when it comes to our work, God is our foundation. When it comes to whatever it is we do for work, because we are designed by God to work, we are designed by God to work with him, that means that whatever our work is, God becomes our foundation. Rather than God being what is eliminated from our work, God becomes the foundation from which our work is built upon. And when God becomes the foundation for work, then that changes everything about how we view work and that changes everything about how we act towards our work. When God becomes the foundation of our work, when we start embracing his original intention and design, then what that means is we now approach our work with his set of values. We approach our work with his integrity and his ethic. God's value of honesty, God's value of authenticity, God's value of loving people, God's value of helping the least of these, God's value of working with excellence and doing a good job. Those now become our values in our work because he is our foundation and we are working for him. The biggest reason why we see work as a curse is because we have eliminated God from our work. But when God returns into our work and becomes our foundation, then work becomes a blessing. And that's our big picture concept. But when we place God as the foundation of our work, Let's look at three core areas in which that changes our relationship to our work. So there in your note sheet, you have a section titled, A Restored View of Work. And your first fill-in is something we've been talking about so far this morning. Jesus gives us a deeper meaning of work. 
Jesus gives us a deeper meaning of work. We've talked, been talking about this concept already, that what we need to do is often our struggle with work is because we have a small view of work. And the reality is that when God approaches work and when God talks about work, he's talking about something much bigger and much deeper. And when we start seeing the bigger picture, we start finding our enjoyment in it. To kind of illustrate this, illustrate this um, let me share a story from the movie Elf. Have you ever seen the movie Elf? It's a fantastic Christmas movie. Now, some of you might be rolling your eyes going, why are you talking about Christmas movies in October? Well, because I saw a bunch of Santas in Target. Therefore, it's free game to start celebrating and talking about Christmas. So if you've never seen Elf, you know, Will Ferrell, the the lead actor, plays an elf, a grown-up elf, and he's trying to find his real dad. And what I love about this movie is that Will Ferrell plays the character with such a naive innocence that's amazingly charming. One of my favorite scenes in Elf is one of the dumbest scenes in the entire movie. He's walking through New York City, and he walks by a coffee shop that has a neon sign that says something along the lines of world's best cup of coffee, world's greatest cup of coffee. And being naively innocent, he gets really excited. He goes in, and he's celebrating, hey, good job, guys. World's best cup, good for you, you did it. Smiling, and then he leaves. And then later on in the movie, he brings Zoe Deschanel's character back to this coffee shop, and he's so excited. And he's, he's, got, he's got her closing her eyes, and he puts the coffee in front of her. He's like, taste it. What do you think it is? And he's about to burst with joy. And her response is, it's a lousy cup of coffee. Now, that's a goofy way to illustrate what I'm trying to talk about, but what do you see there? You see big picture and small picture views, Right? And often when it comes to our work, we struggle because all we see is the small little picture. But when we see God's big picture, then we start understanding where the possibility of work being a joy can come from. We've talked about this big picture, that God is a worker, that God designed it, that God gave it to us as a blessing. Those are all part of the deeper meaning. But what I want to do in this point is I want to focus on one more specific truth that makes our view of work bigger, and that's this. Often, when we think of work, all we think about is a job in which, we're, in which we receive a paycheck. For many of us, that is the totality of our view in work. But hear me very, very clearly. There are many people in this room that are honoring God, that are working hard, that are at work, even though they are not receiving a paycheck. There are people in this room that are hard at God-honoring work, but they don't go to an office in the morning, but their, but their full-time job is caring for someone, whether it's raising children, whether it's caring for a relative or somebody else who can't care for themselves. There are people in this room that they've been out of a job for a considerable amount of time, and it feels as if their full-time job is searching time and time again and doors keep closing, but yet they're being active. They're not accepting, they're not accepting, this, oper- they're not accepting this, this lot in life as I'm just going to give up, but they keep going and going. And since they have the time, maybe they're volunteering at church or maybe they're giving their time to other people. They are at work. There's other people that maybe they're not going to a job, maybe they're means somebody else is taking care of their means so they just give as much as their time to serve other people as possible do you see that just because you don't get a regular paycheck does not mean that you are not capable of doing God honoring work it is much bigger than simply a job Now, for a lot of us, a job is a big part of it but what we see is whether you go and work in a corporate office or whether your office is taking four kids to the park on a regular basis, you are at work and therefore the principle remains the same. Whatever your work, God must be the foundation of it. Whatever your work, God must be the foundation of it. Because when God is the foundation of our work, whatever our work may be, then that is we be, when we begin to actually find value in what we do. And that leads me to your second fill-in. Christ gives our work value, not 
titles or positions. Christ gives our work value, not titles or positions. I mentioned earlier that sin distorts our view of work by introducing lies. And one of the biggest lies that sin has introduced to distort our view of work is the lie that we work to earn our worth. We work to prove that we are actually valuable. We work to prove that we have value, worth, and purpose in the eyes of people around us. We often use our work as a, reason, as, 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 as a catalyst to try to do what we call win at life. And often when we do that, we try to use our work as a reason to show why we are better than other human beings. Because like Solomon did for so many years of his struggle, he assumed my value is going to come from my work. And we struggle with that because we want to see, va- see value, our value in the eyes of other people. We want other people to tell us we matter. We want other people to tell us we have worth. We want other people to tell us we're good at things. And that is an honest, real struggle. But not only do we struggle with looking at to get our value work in the eyes of other people, but we struggle with that internally, don't we? Maybe my work will finally make me believe I'm worth something. Maybe my work will finally make me believe that I have purpose or that I'm making a difference. Going back to Solomon's struggle, we saw that it doesn't result in that because it's a false God. To put it in more relevant language, Solomon was the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. He was the leader of one of the most powerful organizations, one of the most powerful nations at the time. He had everything, but he had the belief that my work is going to prove my worth. And what he discovered was this is meaningless because a false God will never, ever give you what only Jesus can. And that's purpose. That's worth. And that's salvation for now and for all of eternity. Whatever your work is, your worth does not come from it. Your work comes from the Jesus who is the foundation that you are working for. Whatever your work is. Because if Jesus is the source of our meaning, and he is, when we go to work, whatever that may be, the source of our meaning is there with us always. I love how the Apostle Paul puts this. It's there in your note sheet. In fact, we're going to be looking at these verses of Colossians in our life group study this week. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if working for the Lord. To paraphrase what Paul is saying, whatever your work situation is, make sure that you are doing it with an active awareness that the living, breathing presence of God is there with you. If you were with me two weeks ago when we talked about Sabbath, we talked about rest, do you remember how we defined it? Do you remember that biblical rest is not defined in physical fatigue, but finding biblical rest means that we are in the presence of God? Do you see that same definition now being applied to our work? Therefore, we can find rest when we work if we are actively aware of the fact that the God who gives us rest is there with us. Because when we are trying to earn our worth through our work or through anything else, that becomes a burdensome life. It's like we are getting more shackled and bound and eventually it leads to death because it will never give us what we want. But when we realize in work and in any other area that my value and worth comes from Jesus and Jesus alone, then why that gives me rest is I can now approach my work with a sense of freedom. I can approach my work that regardless of what occurs in my work situation, regardless of if and when my work situation changes, my value and my worth is secure in the hands of Jesus. Do you see how this changes everything? I love how this is characterized in church history, actually. Let's go down memory lane in church history. Back in the 16th century, much like in Jesus' time, the church had become a soulless institution. 
And it had become a soulless institution because the religious leaders who were not focused on God, but were just focused on themselves, had kept introducing rule after man-made rule after man-made rule that were destroying and choking the joy out of church and scripture. And so the Lord raised up some men that we call reformers, two very popular ones, Martin Luther and John Calvin. And they reformed. They were, their, their heart was to take people back to Scripture, the joy that is Scripture. Another way of saying their heart was to take people back to the very presence of God. And while they st- took a bold stand and reformed against many things that were done, in the, uh, done to hurt the image of God, one of the things they took a stand on was the false teaching in their church at the time that only certain jobs had meaning in the eyes of God. It was a common teaching in their time that if you did not work for the church, if you were not a priest, if you were not a nun, a pastor, something along those lines, then your job had no meaning. And in fact, the word that the religious leaders, excuse me, the phrase the religious leaders would use was called the spiritual estate If you weren't one of these approved jobs, you are not part of the spiritual estate. Now, it sounds pretty exclusive, doesn't it? Because it was. And so we had men like these reformers that looked through scripture and they saw words such as Peter's word that said, all Christ's followers are a royal priesthood. And they realized the simple and profound truth that my value and worth does not come from the externals. It does not come from what's on my door or from what people think of me. It comes from Jesus and Jesus alone. Therefore, what these men did is they started teaching this freeing truth that all Christ's followers, regardless of your job, are part of the spiritual estate. In fact, I put a quote from John Calvin there in your note sheet. He writes, no task will be seen as so sordid and base, provided you obey your calling in it, meaning that God is your foundation, that it will not shine and be reckoned very precious in God's sight. They're sending a very clear message that you can be a pastor at a church and your full-time job can be peeling potatoes and you are honoring God. We are freed when we realize that our value comes from Jesus and not what it says on my door or on business cards or anything else. See, there's people in this room that the Lord has blessed you in your career paths, that you have achieved levels of success in your places of management where you have influence and power, and that's a great thing. There's people in this room that when it comes to your place of work, you might be at the most entry-level position and you even wonder if some of the higher-ups know you exist. There's people in this room that you go to a job which you love. Maybe it was the job you dreamed about since you were a kid or if it wasn't, it was just something you fell in love with. There's people in this room that maybe the job you go to is just that. It's a job and you're indifferent to it. You don't feel strongly one way or another. There's people in this room that going to your job every day is very difficult because of your relationship with it and circumstances there. There's people in this room that, again, your job is caring for someone, caring for children, and you're not getting a paycheck. And again, parents, we know we're not getting a thank you, but that's your job and you're working hard. There's people in this room that you're doing that on top of being a single parent and trying to work what you can to provide for your family. And I could go on and on and on, but just using those examples, we've covered a lot of different sides of the spectrum of work, have we not? Regardless of where you are in those examples, the the same truth applies to all of you. All of you have equal value and worth in the eyes of God because of the blood of Jesus. And that changes our relationship towards work. That changes what we expect to get out of work. His presence changes everything. In fact, when we realize that God is where we draw our value from, it's like we, our view of work goes from black and white to a vibrant color. Did you ever see the movie Hook with Robin Williams? Hook is one of my favorite movies. I've always loved the Peter Pan story and the lore of Peter Pan. And this movie that presents the story of a grown-up Peter Pan who doesn't remember who he is has always been, always been one of my favorites. 
And there's a scene fairly into the movie where Peter finds the old hideout too, where he, Wendy, Michael, and John used to hang out when they were kids. And he still doesn't remember who he is. But as he's walking through this old clubhouse, all of a sudden the memories start coming back to him. All of a sudden he sees a chair and he remembers Wendy sitting in that chair. And he starts telling that story. And then he moves on to a table. He moves on to little items that were left on. All of a sudden his world is going from black and white and it goes to vibrant color and it culminates with him remembering who he is. And this is true in our view of work when we put God back in his rightful place as the foundation of our work, then our view of work goes from black and white to that vibrant color and we truly come to life when it comes to our work. And so you're seeing how this already is such a radically different view than how so many of us approach work. We've seen that it's bigger. We've seen that it's deeper than how many of us see it. We've seen that God is our value and not the externals. But the third point I want to make in the time we have left is the fact that God has always designed work not just to care for our needs, but to care for the needs of others as well. And that's your last fill-in. Our work is an opportunity to serve others. Our work is an opportunity to serve others. God has been modeling this principle since the very beginning of existence. The first thing we see God doing is working, right? But who is he working for? Us. We see this after the, as he gave Adam a job in the garden, that Adam was working for God and God still walked among them working. We see this after the fall when the sin came in and we lost Eden. We see that God is still at work. And when God is at work, what who is he at work for? His people. We see this when Jesus came into the world, that Jesus came to continue that work ultimately through his death and resurrection, that God is always at work for the good of his people. We see that God not only loves work, that work is not only a blessing for us, but work is also an opportunity for us to bless others. I love what Jesus says there in your note sheet in Mark chapter 10. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. No matter how good your resume is, it doesn't beat Jesus's. And yet with the best resume in existence, Jesus' attitude and heart is to serve. Do you know for years upon years, civilizations have always wondered if God himself came into the world, what would he be like? We see this in scripture as they were waiting for the Messiah. Is he going to be the conquering war hero? Is he going to come in a big show of flash in a lot, with a lot of flash and a lot of show? And how does our God enter this world? As a carpenter. As a worker. As somebody who worked with their hands. As somebody who served people in the big and in the small we see that he shows us this value that our work is an opportunity to bless other people. Now, there's a lot of ways uh, we can talk about our work being a blessing, but one of the most important ones is the one I want to focus on, and that's this. Our work is an opportunity to serve other people by sharing Jesus with them. Whatever your work situation is, we have opportunities to share Christ with those around us. Now, we have opportunities in what we would consider the obvious ways, such as having a conversation with somebody about Jesus, inviting somebody to church. Those are incredible ways, and God opens those doors. But the reality that many of us have experienced is that we can share Christ without having a Christian conversation. See, think about it. There are so many of us in our world at large. There's so many of us in our culture. We are raised in a culture that teaches you to hate work. And that is the common attitude. And so someone who loves Jesus, who allows Jesus to change their view of work and actually approaches their work with a joy, that person is going to stand out. And that changes the way we approach things. Think about this. If God were to change something big, such as our attitude towards work, 
this has many repercussions that are going to share Christ without using a convert, without having a gospel conversation, so to speak. And so we talked about our value comes from Christ and not a title. Can you imagine what would it would do to our world to see Christ followers who find joy in their work regardless of what their title is? I recently read a story about a man who loves Jesus and has spent 30 some odd years as a doorman in New York City. And he talks about the fact that as a doorman, he has seen some of the richest and most powerful people in the world interact with him. And everybody that's interacted with him has always noticed his joy towards his work. And to many of these people, this guy is as low on the totem pole as you can go. And so the question is, why are you so joyful about opening a door for people? And his response is, I'm joyful because Jesus gives me joy in all areas. Can you imagine the difference that will make in our attitudes and work? Continuing to talk about our attitudes, can you imagine the difference? Can you imagine how the opportunities to share Christ, if we start taking a loving and a joyful attitude in how we interact with those coworkers or that boss that we're convinced is related to Satan? <laughs> because what's the common approach to those people? Well, they make it difficult. And so we all get together and we talk horrible things about them. We gang up against them. We stop treating them like human beings in some situations. And so maybe it's trying to engage in a simple conversation. Maybe it's trying to find a piece of common ground. But hear me clearly, when it comes to those relationships, there is only so much you can do and you can't control if the other person keeps shutting you down. But that doesn't let us off the hook because I may not be able to control or have a relationship with them, but am I praying for them privately for good things? Am I praying for that coworker, that boss to see Jesus? Am I praying to have a better relationship with them? Am I doing things to love them that they may never find out about? But it's about embracing a new attitude towards work. Can you imagine the opportunity we will have to share Christ if we allow Christ to change the way we talk about our jobs, nobody wants to hear about Jesus from the most embittered person they know. And when it comes to our work, we struggle with that as Christ followers, don't we? Where we have Christ followers who are constantly talking about how much they hate their jobs, how much they hate their coworkers, and then they expect to turn around and invite somebody to church and are surprised when that person does not take them up on the invitation. Because the message we're sending is you hate everything and you go to church. My life is going to be worse if I go to church with you. <laughs> Jobs are hard. Work is hard for a variety of reasons. But just like our value, our joy doesn't come necessarily from the job for all of us, but it always comes from Jesus. And the reason why we can always have a different attitude towards our work is because the God of the universe is there with us in those difficult situations. So the big question I want to ask you on this point is, whatever your work is, are you actively seeking opportunities to serve someone through your work? Are you actively seeking opportunities to serve? See, a great way to start doing this is by multiple times throughout your work day saying the simple prayer, Father, open my eyes. Father, open my ears. Let me see and hear opportunities to serve people today. And once we start praying that regularly, we are going to be given opportunities in both the big, but also opportunities to love and share Christ in the small. I've recently reconnected with an old friend of mine and he is a very successful professional DJ and MC and he loves Jesus like crazy. And about two weeks ago, he gave me an opportunity to come as he was DJing an event over in the back lot of Fox Studios. And he gave me an opportunity to come and just shadow him just to learn from what he does. And it was an awesome event. It was big. There were a lot of people. And so at the end of the night, it is very late at night and all the adrenaline had worn out. I just want to clean up. I want to go get a donut and I want to go home. That's all I can think about at that point. And so as we're cleaning up, I know he's as tired as I am. In fact, I know he's even more tired because he did all the work. I just watched. 
And what was amazing to me is the only people in our room was the wait staff, the people that had been doing the janitorial work, the people that had been serving food all night, the crews that were tearing down tables and chairs. And he made it a point to go to each and every one of these people, look them in the eye and go, hey, you did an amazing job tonight. Thank you for what you did. And what was amazing is they all responded the same way. They had this giant smile on the face because clearly he just made their nights. And why did he do that? Because God was putting that on his heart to go and encourage someone else. Do you see how in something so simple he shared Christ and he got to make an impact in the life of someone else? See, the bottom line is for many of us, our work, our view of work has been very, very negative. And that can be for a variety of reasons. And sometimes when we hear a a message such as this, it can seem daunting. How am I going to change my view of work? And the reality is you are not. This is not going to happen on your steam. This is not going to happen on your willpower. Your view of work is only going to change through the power of Jesus. And so what we want to do is we want to be a church. We want to be a group of Christ followers who are giving our work to Jesus, who are submitting to him in our work, are ensuring that he is the foundation and are finding a renewed joy in whatever our work is. Amen? I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out and we're going to close our services with a time of singing. As I often encourage during these times, this is an opportunity for us to talk to God. This is an opportunity for us to encounter God. This is an opportunity for many of us to begin an ongoing dialogue with God when it comes to our work. As important, this is an opportunity for many of us to begin the practice of listening to God to what he has to say when it comes to our work. Let this time of worship be the beginning of a dialogue, of a discussion, of an opportunity for God to radically change your view of work. At this time, too, our ushers are going to come forward and they're going to receive our gifts and offerings. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. Father, thank you for who you are. Father, thank you that you bring us joy even in those areas in life we don't think could ever be joyful. Thank you that it's not because of our circumstances. It's not because of the accolades. It's not because of the title. Thank you that we have eternal joy, value, worth, and salvation because of Jesus. Thank you that in whatever our work is, you are present. Thank you that you are there. You are celebrating with us when things go well in our work. You are encouraging us and holding us when we struggle. Father, for, whoever, for wherever we're at, wherever we fall on the spectrum of what our work is, you must be the foundation regardless of the job title. You must be there and, let, and give us a fire to be a people who are actively seeking your presence and being reminded that when it comes to our work, Jesus is there and I work for him. Jesus, we love you. And as we go into this time of singing, again, let this be the beginning of a beautiful dialogue with you about our work. In your son's name, we all said, amen. Would you stand up and sing with us?